we're going to start uh, in uh, a weird passage to start with uh, for a Christmas time message. We're going to be in Matthew 4, verses 12 through 14. Um, it says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, that's a weird place to start a Christmas message. And from that passage, it may, you know, it may leave the question of, okay, why? Why do we start here? Why is that important? What's happening that makes that something that we need to highlight? And actually, when we think about it, or when I think about it, I think that Christmas is kind of that way as well. Like there's, there's a lot of just very general whys, just surface level whys. We know why we celebrate Christmas. We know that Jesus was born. We know that we give gifts because the wise men gave gifts and we give gifts too. Uh, we know that there's hope and there's peace and there's joy. We know all of those things on the surface, but if we're talking about the meaning of Christmas, there's the deeper question of why? Why is there hope? Why is there peace? Why is there joy? Why do we give gifts? Why does all of that happen? Why do we celebrate it? Why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? And for that, we're going to go back to the Old Testament because it's the job of the prophets to reveal some of the deeper things of God. So we're going to go back to an Old Testament prophet. We're going to go back to Isaiah. Uh, and Isaiah is going to give us context not only for why this passage from Matthew is important, but for how it relates to Christmas as a whole. Okay, so let's go back. And before, before we read in Isaiah, we're going to be in Isaiah 9, but before we read there, I want to give just a little bit of history, just a little bit, not enough to bore you, not enough to make you get up and go to the bathroom, but just, just enough. Um, so, so at the time I, we get to Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9 is built on a lot of other things. Isaiah 9 specifically, verses 1 through 7, relate directly to something that happens in 2 Kings. King Ahaz of Israel, um, he was a king who had rebelled, like very determinedly. He was like, it was like God had a two-year-old as king, right? And God said, do this. And he said, no! And he did his own thing, right? Which is what, it's typical two-year-old behavior, right? So... He was wanting to exert his own will. He refused to follow God. He instead created some things that he wanted people to worship instead. And he distanced Israel from the covering and the protection of the Lord, leaving them open to attack, leaving them open to all the things that God was trying to protect them from by simply obeying and following. So we get King Ahaz basically rebelling against, the, against God and inviting in attacks specifically from Assyria. Now, Assyria, just a bunch of bad dudes. You do not, I mean, if you want to be attacked by anybody, it's not Assyria. That's, that's bad. Um, and Assyria is to the north of Israel. And so if we're looking at not only Isaiah 9, but also in this passage from Matthew, we see they re he references two cities, Zebulun and Naphtali, and then he references Galilee. Well, geographically speaking, in the northern part of Israel, you've got these two cities, Zebulun and Naphtali, and you've got mountains on one side, you've got the ocean on the other, you've got the sea on the other. Any attack that's going to come into Israel has to be funneled directly through the center, and it just 
rolls right over Zebulon and Naphtali. So these two cities have seen, because of the disobedience of Ahaz and Israel, because of the inviting of the attacks, because of the Assyrian armies that kind of they welcomed in by telling God, we reject you, these two areas, Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee, received the brunt of the attack. They got hit first. They got hit hardest. And that is where we come to Isaiah 9. So Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, actually, let's just read 1 through 3. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So this is good news. This is good news being prophesied for the people of northern Israel specifically in these cities that have been just overrun, attacked, and, and, and the distress and the gloom that comes along with that. Isaiah speaking, with the Lord speaking through Isaiah, he's saying, you have been overrun. You have had calamity. You've had darkness, and you've been just living and dwelling and sitting in it, but... Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for you. There will be no more distress for you. In the past, he humbled you, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Now, if you notice that passage we read in Matthew, this is where this becomes important for that passage. Isaiah is trying to lift up the eyes of the, the children of Israel and say, anticipate hope. Hope is coming. Don't worry about what's going on here in the natural. Lift your eyes. Get ready for hope. And when that hope arrives, embrace it. Welcome it. It is coming from me, and it's coming to rescue you. He promises here, those of you who are in these two cities, in this area of Galilee, you were hit hardest. Hope is coming to you first. Hope is coming to you first. Really quickly, let's go back to Matthew. Just as an encouragement to us to show that when God says something, he means it. When he promises something, you can bank on it. He doesn't forget you. He doesn't leave you abandoned. If he spoke it, believe it, it will come to pass. And what we see years later is that the Lord didn't forget his word. In Matthew 4, 12 through 14, once again, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he hadn't started his ministry yet. Leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 17, from that time on, not before, he didn't go somewhere else before. The light didn't come to somewhere else first. God promised, you've been overrun. 
You've been humbled, but light is coming. Hope is coming, and it's coming to you first because you suffered the brunt of the attack. It's been darkest for you, so light is coming for you. And verse 17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Isaiah promised the children of Israel, hope is coming. The arrival of salvation is coming. And then we see Jesus, not only in his birth, we're reassured that his word is true, but very specifically for the people in these two areas, they see, oh, God didn't forget. It's been a little while, but he was true. He was right. He promised. And what we see here is that Jesus is the light that God promised in Isaiah 9. Jesus is the light. He is the one that dispels the darkness. And when situations have been their very darkest, actually Ben and I were talking about this just yesterday, about how cool it is that when a room can be completely dark, you turn on one little bitty light, and all of a sudden the room is no longer completely dark. There's a way to see everything in there. A, a little light dispels the darkness, makes it flee, makes it of no consequence anymore. But Jesus is not just a little light. He is a glorious light. He's a glorious light. And so in verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 9, Isaiah is encouraging us to anticipate hope. Now, for these people that he's speaking with, yeah, their, their problems that they've gotten into are because of their own disobedience. The problems that they've gotten into are because they lost their way, because they started following other things, because through their very best efforts trying to do things without God, they got themselves into a situation that they can't get out of. They need rescue. They need rescue. And that is where we see the real connection between this passage and Christmas. We live Christmas on kind of two different planes, right? There's, there's this cultural Christmas that we live, which is also very good, right? There's a cultural Christmas where it's peace and hope and joy, and, and it's about our own comfort, and it's about leisure, and it's about spending time with family, and it's about giving and receiving gifts, and none of that is bad. That's all really good. It's all really good stuff. But the meaning behind that, we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, why is the veil between the spirit and the things of God and the things of the world, why is it so much thinner during this time? Why is that veil so much thinner? Why is it that we think of hope first now? Joy is the thing we think of first now. And it all comes back to this. It all comes back to Isaiah 9. So, destruction that, they, that they've been experiencing stems from their own disobedience, their own rebellion against God. It's created separation from his covering. And what they found is that, is that the methods that they use to create their problem, they can't use those same methods to get out of their problem, right? Whatever we do to create our situation, whatever darkness we find ourselves in, whatever we did to allow... Uh, allow that to come into our lives. Sometimes we're, we're not consciously inviting darkness. It just happens. The world can be a dark place, and sometimes that darkness invades us. 
and it invades our lives. Sometimes we welcome it because we're disobedient or because we're, we're not following uh, what the Lord's asking us to do. But, but regardless, Isaiah in verses 1 through 3 is encouraging us to lift our eyes and see that hope is coming. God promised hope. He promised rescue. He promised salvation. So we have this cultural Christmas that's kind of about feeling good, goodwill, good deeds, but then we have this spiritual Christmas. That's really what gives the cultural Christmas its meaning and its power. We've got this spiritual Christmas, which is about rescue, which is about salvation, which is about victory, and which is about redemption. We have this spiritual Christmas. And so Isaiah has been writing to them, lift up your eyes, hope is coming. And then in verses four through seven, he starts to describe to them how this hope is going to come. So Isaiah nine, four through seven. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them. He's speaking to the light, Jesus. You have shattered the yoke. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Doesn't seem like a very Christmassy verse. Why? Why is all this stuff? He's making three great promises here. What's being prophesied is a glorious light an exponential increase, an abundance of joy, and everlasting liberty and peace. How is that going to come about? And in verse 6, we find out. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. The Lord promises through Isaiah, of the greatness of his government and his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He's promising. He's promising things that if, if we're not submitted to the Lord, he's promising things that we might try to make happen in our own strength. He's promising victory over darkness. He's promising peace. Our best efforts as humans to produce peace have failed. Our best efforts to produce a victory that lasts forever will fail. Everything that we do in our own strength, once again, The methods that we use to get into our problems are not the methods we can use to get out of them. And God knows this. And so, case in point, he references Midian. I want to take just a little bitty detour here. Remember Midian? You remember Midian? And Gideon? It rhymes, so it's easier to remember. Gideon and Midian. Um, So Gideon's army, and I put army in finger quotes, right? You can't see it if you're listening to the podcast right now, but just imagine me doing finger quotes. Because he didn't really have much of an army. So Gideon is, receives a, a, he's, he gets to talk to an angel. And the angel comes and calls him a mighty man of valor. 
And anybody who knew Gideon at the time was like, I think they got the wrong guy. I, I, don't, I don't, the angel might have a wrong address. But he calls him a mighty man of valor. Gideon was not a mighty man of valor. He laughed at that, and then he tried to hide so that God wouldn't use him to lead an army against Midian, which was a huge army, 135,000 men. Gideon could only see 32,000 or so that they could bring up against the Midianites, and then God whittled that down to 300. How are 300 going to go against 135,000? It doesn't make any sense. It can't work in the natural, in the way that we view things. It can't work. We are defeated. We might as well just give up, which is kind of what Gideon has been giving into this whole time. And what happens? As you read, uh, fast forward, it's going to be a spoiler alert, but the 300 don't even have to fight. They don't even have to fight because the Lord moves. God moves and confuses the Midianite army, and they all kill each other. The enemy gets confused and destroys itself, and Gideon and his army just being willing to go into battle just being willing to trust the Lord, they escape unscathed, and the army is laid waste to. And that's what Isaiah is referencing here. Because we, we try to solve things on our own. We try to fix the problem in our own means. And so Isaiah, the Lord, through Isaiah, is referencing Midian's defeat. And it's the light. It's Jesus that shatters the yoke that burdens you. It's Jesus that shatters the bar that's been across your shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. So verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 9 indicate these huge victories. And Isaiah has already referenced this impossible victory that Gideon and his army won. And what he's saying here is that the, the great victories, the sweeping peace, the liberty, the, the, the dramatic change, the, the light, the glorious light that's coming, all of this is going to come in the most unlikely of ways. God is saying through Isaiah, every anxiety, every fear, every difficulty, every problem, every challenge, every oppression that you have faced is about to be confronted and eradicated because I am sending you a baby. I'm going to send you a baby, which honestly doesn't seem helpful at all. You know, I mean, like, there's that Jim Gaffigan, I mentioned this earlier, there's the Jim Gaffigan line, they, somebody asked him, what's it like to have five kids? And he says, imagine that you're drowning and someone throws you a baby. That's <laughs> what it's like having five kids. And, 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 uh, and this is what God is promising. But what, what he's doing and what Isaiah is doing is he's reminding the people at this time, he's reminding us, God does things divinely apart from anything that seems to make sense to us. He will have his way. He will have his way. And as we fight against it, we only get in the way of his victory. We only get in the way of his victory. So, so just as he did with Gideon's army, he's, he's overturning our expectations. 
The scripture says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God doesn't do things the way that we do them. We feel like strength is strength. The way that God works things <laughs> that boggles us all the time, it's weakness overcomes power. Foolishness overcomes wisdom. A child overcomes all evil. It doesn't make sense to us, but as we surrender to him and see, as Jennifer mentioned earlier, you've seen this happen in your lives. If you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you've seen a situation that it looked like there was absolutely no way out, no way through, no way over, and yet God came in and changed everything. And we need to remember that that's how he does it. That is his way. We like to think that we're really strong, we're really mighty, we're capable of kind of conquering everything on our own. Um, but it turns out that we need more than our best effort to break us out of darkness. We need something else to arrive on the scene. When we come to these, you know, when we come to these moments where we come to the end of ourselves, oftentimes we say things like, God, I just need you. God, I just need your healing. God, I just need your, your, your provision. God, I just need your wisdom and your answers. And what God is saying through Isaiah, he's saying, if you will receive this child, you'll have me. If you will receive this child, you will have me. Because this is how I'm choosing to bring the world out of darkness. This is how I'm choosing to bring a great light that dispels the darkness. This is how I'm choosing to overthrow all evil. This is how I'm choosing to let my people know that I love them, that I hear them, that I'm with them. I'm choosing to send you this child. And he trusted us. To take care, I say this a lot. Like that was either divine wisdom or a real big lack of judgment to send a baby to us. Because we mess up things. But the child grew. The child grew and then began his ministry in Matthew 4. Began to preach, began to declare, began to establish. That child went on to take all of our sin upon himself so that we could overcome. And then in verse six, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote Pastor Ray Ortland because he says this better than I can. As it relates to verse six, Ray Ortland says, as the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies, so let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily, so let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly, so let's enjoy him. And as the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies, so let's welcome his dominion. One last point here, Isaiah 9, 7. It says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's so important for us to remember he sends us this child. He sees us in darkness. He sees us struggling. He sees us needing rescue. And so he sends this child who he knows 
everything we've ever feared, everything we've ever been anxious about, everything we've ever been oppressed by, the answer to all of it is contained in this child. And, and he doesn't do it because of our passion to be rescued. It says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He does it because of his passion to show us his love. It's the zeal. It's his fervent love. It's his passion for us that causes him, that moves him to send his son and bring our rescue. It's his passion for us. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. The same God who prophesied through Isaiah, the same God who sent his son Jesus, the same God who is at work all throughout the scripture, that same God is still at work, still at work. And that's kind of what, what brings me here as we're winding down, brings me back to the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is a time when we absolutely should be embracing goodwill and good deeds and family and friends and, and enjoying our time together, enjoying our leisure, experiencing joy. We should be doing that. That is a good thing. But we also need to recognize that the reason we can even do any of those things is because the Father's heart was moved when he saw us in darkness, he was moved to provide a way for us to get out. When he saw us in darkness, struggling, he sent the light. When he saw us in oppression, when he saw us in bondage, he sent the chain breaker. Amen. When he saw us just flailing around with the best that we knew how, he sent a better way. He sent a better way to redeem us, to rescue us. And that's really at the heart of Christmas. That's what Christmas is. That's the meaning of the season. Culturally, we distill it down to a day. Christmas is not just a single day. Christmas is a reality that every person is invited into. What does Christmas mean? It means welcoming the Son of God and inviting him into our lives. That's what Christmas means. And that's not a single day of the year. That's a reality that we all step into at any moment. And it's a reality that we continually step into day after day after day. John 1.14, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John 1, 4 and 5, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That is what Christmas is. Christmas is the grateful welcoming of Jesus. And it doesn't just have to be December 25th. 